you don't pass a lot of bills on the oversight committee. You, there are a lot of great sound bites that can be made, and she's really good at cross-examining, and it seems like a really good place for her skill set. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, March 16th. Today, I'm joined by Tara Palmieri to talk about the evolution of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Sometimes it's hard to tell if AOC is playing an inside game in Congress or if she's just happy being a progressive outsider and media star. But those questions cut to an even bigger topic. What does AOC actually want to be? A senator, a speaker, a governor, an ideologue, or maybe one day a president? Tara and I discuss what she's up to. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss the untold inside story of how Silicon Valley went to war to save Silicon Valley Bank. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Happy March Madness Day to all those who celebrate, including we here at Puck, who have a bracket going on. I guarantee I will not win, despite being cocky. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, not to talk about basketball, but to talk about a star, for sure, in politics, AOC. How are you doing, Tara? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. So I've sort of been thinking about this topic a lot recently, possibly because... Is she going to primary Kirsten Gillibrand in New York? Partially because she's taken some weird votes since coming into office. Anyway, AOC just inspires so many topics of conversation in so many directions. You called your piece that's up on Puck right now, the remaking of AOC. In your mind, beyond that headline, like what has changed about her in the five years that she's been in Washington and quite frankly been in the American eye despite only representing one district in Congress? I think the thing about her is she's starting to pull her punches when it comes to Democratic leadership. Mm -hmm. She seems to be showing some interest in playing the inside game after about two terms being kind of the thorn in Nancy Pelosi's side, even though she did vote for her for speaker. But, you know, she and her and the squad, when they were in the majority, they really pushed the party to the left and mm-hmm. they were the people that Pelosi had to worry about when getting trying to get votes. So, you know, she often would take to Instagram and Twitter to defy the party. Uh, she, she was a, a star and she was really out there. But it seems like as of late, she sort of moderated her tone. She, you know, voted for Hakeem Jeffries for speaker mm-hmm. every time. I think it was 15 mm-hmm. times. She didn't suggest anyone else, even though she could have. She has sort of become a better soldier. Like, she's not a spoil sport. I mean, she did vote mm-hmm. against the infrastructure plan in the last Congress, against the popular bipartisan infrastructure bill. But she ultimately voted for the um, Inflation Reduction Act, and she really mm-hmm. let Pramila Jayapal take the lead on the Build Back Better negotiation. So it seems like she has some sort of, like, curiosity about playing the inside game and how to actually be effective in Congress. But I think she's starting to realize that like to do those sorts of things, to make the you know the Green New Deal actually happen, you actually have to have some allies in leadership mm-hmm. and across the aisle. And you need to, you know, you gotta play the Congress game a little bit. But I've noticed her tone starting to moderate a bit, even during the election. Like she didn't really endorse that many primary challengers against incumbents. 
Yeah, and I think what's interesting here is there are so many questions about what the end game of that inside game is because she's kind of inscrutable in terms of what do you want to be? Right. Do you want to be in Congress forever? If so, do you want to be speaker one day? Do you want to run for Senate? That would require waiting for someone to retire, like Chuck Schumer, who's kind of held her close. Or, like I said, like Kirsten Gillibrand seems pretty vulnerable and she's pretty close to Wall Street. I don't know. Like she's running for reelection next year. AOC could primary her. Does AOC want to be president one day? Who knows? Does she want to be governor of New York? Does she want to move the Overton window and help the party move to the left? You know, Bernie Sanders, when he ran for president in 2015, when he announced, he was like 74 years old. So in that sense, you know, if AOC just wants to stay in Congress, she's got another 40 years to move the Overton window. And I don't know, there's just, it's it's just tough to know which direction she wants to go. Or, and look, I'm sure you've heard these conversations, especially from your perch in New York, but like I was talking to one blue state member of Congress recently who was complaining generally about the squad and how all they want to do is sell merch, send out emails and raise money for themselves. You know, maybe it's easy to be a member of Congress and have your online fundraising base and you can be a buzzy online progressive and get a photo shoot in Vogue and like not do anything. That's a comfortable life, too. So I don't know. What's your sense of like what her next step is? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, I was told that she'll make a decision by next year if she primaries Gillibrand. She's still too Mm. young to run for president. She need to be 35 and she's 33. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People who are close to her that I spoke to seem to suggest that she's playing the long game in Congress. But I don't know. I find that to kind of be hard to believe. But who knows? You know, right now she's vice ranking chair on the oversight committee, which is like kind of you don't pass a lot of bills on the oversight committee. There are a lot of great sound bites that can be made and she's really good at cross examining and it seems like a really good place for her skill set. But like even just being like a ranking member on a subcommittee on the natural resources committee, not really like the place to do really big things. So it's like, it's kind of hard for me to believe that she's really playing the long game in Congress because if she is, then she would be taking different steps. But again, she has been more subdued. She's also just kind of taking it in. Like I've told, been told like on an emotional level, like it's been really hard for her to run at this pace and she doesn't think that she can. She's, they're thinking about it as a marathon and she just realizes like, I can't do everything. But I think ultimately AOC needs to decide. I mean, maybe she doesn't need to decide. She can just carry on as she is, and see what the political landscape looks like in a year from now, if it makes sense to run against Gillibrand. Maybe she can try out this whole idea of like making some friends when they're in the minority and it doesn't matter that much. Or, you know, maybe she, you know, doesn't give Hakeem Jeffries a hard time. And then when they're in the majority, she gets to actually introduce some legislation and do something. Or maybe she's just going to run for president. She doesn't have to be in the Senate to run for president. God knows. No, um, no not anymore. The ladder climbing, yeah. the traditional ladder climbing doesn't really exist anymore in that sense. She is legitimately famous and can raise shitloads of money. But yeah, I mean, right. I think you're right. Like the only decision in the near term she really needs needs to make because she's not vulnerable in her own district at this point is do I challenge Kirsten Gillibrand for the Democratic Senate nomination? And like speaking of someone who has no brand, Kirsten Gillibrand, she's sort of I don't know what you are, Kristen Gillibrand. She's just an, a senator who a lot of people feel like don't have a ton of rapport with <laughs> um, in New York. Uh, and AOC could plausibly challenge her, I think. But that's that's the only decision she has to make. Do you want to be a legislator or do you want to be a star? And it, it's almost like when after she won in 2018 and Democrats took back the House, they had the majority 
And she was super famous in that moment because she was new and fresh on the scene. Pelosi, you know, they kind of had like a frenemy style relationship. And then, but I'm curious, like now that Republicans control the House, it's like, what do you do? And I would say that even like the squad lost a little bit of mojo once Biden became president because Democrats were just kind of able to get things done. And while they needed the squad on a few occasions, they didn't totally need them. And so, you know, they were very restive, loud, principled in many ways, yes, when they were when they first came into power in 2019. But like they kind of lost that edge once Democrats controlled all levers of government and they didn't really need the squad to pass legislation. And they lost Trump too. They lost a yeah, foil in Trump, essentially. Totally. And, you know, I also think the fact that none of these new members like Maxwell Frost, who's like 23 progressives, Greg Kassar, they don't, they didn't want to join the squad. I, I wrote a piece I, about That this. jumped out of me in your piece. I didn't know that actually, like that these two young Bernie style type progressives like didn't want to be part of the squad. <laughs> Very no, interesting. Yeah, Why is that? Yeah. I, well, I wrote a whole piece about it. It's called, um, <laughs> I'll send it to you, Sorry. but it was from, it was from October, <laughs> right? Before. No, it was okay. It was actually from before the election. I called around to these young progressives who are running and I asked them, do you want to be a part of the squad? And for the most part, they like just didn't want the baggage of the bad blood, essentially. They didn't want to go in there having to be an enemy of leadership. They want to pass bills and they want to have their own brands and they want to be able to do things on their own. I kind of get it. I mean, yeah. Uh, in fairness to AOC, it's hard to pass legislation in your first two terms. Well, at mm-hmm. least in your first term, unless you're a frontliner. Then leadership mm-hmm. like tries to help you and make sure that like you have something to show for it, right? So that you can get reelected. But when you're from like the Bronx, it's just it's hard. There, there's no priority for her in terms of like, and she, she didn't t- she didn't help herself by protesting outside of Nancy Pelosi's office on day one. You know what I mean? So it's like it's hard to say. Like I, I guess my question is. Could leadership be using her better? Could Hakeem Jeffries be using her immense talents in a way to help the party even more? Or should he not be doing her any favors and just like she's pretty much getting exactly what she deserves? I mean, even being vice ranking chair of the oversight committee is like a pretty big deal. I mean, it's symbolic. It? They create, it's, <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's symbolic. Like they gave they created the role in 2017 because a lot of like the younger uh, oversight mm-hmm. is not an A committee. It's sort of a committee that progressives a lot of them end up on because other chairmen don't want to take them on and it's a good platform they don't have a lot of power over like legislation so they're like okay so you see a lot of young freshman progressives on Mm -hmm. oversight to see her at the top of it is interesting but it's not a ton of power she's not on on energy and commerce which she tried to get onto but she can't get on there they don't want her why because she's too much of a rabble rouser on green new deal yeah and like I think Frank Pallone did not want her. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had the opportunity to either give her or Kathleen Rice in the last Congress um, a role on energy and commerce, which is like probably by far one of the most powerful committees. And she chose Kathleen Rice, who voted against her for speaker instead of AOC, who Mm -hmm. voted for Pelosi. Mm -hmm. So like she kind of gave up on that dream, I think. Well, maybe she hasn't given up on energy and commerce yet. But like that's the place where you can probably make the Green New Deal actually happen. Mm -hmm. Even though it's a non-binding resolution, but whatever. I think if you are in a political media bubble or you're very avowed online leftist, there's an assumption Mm -hmm. that AOC is super popular. And I think something that people in the press lose sight of is how actually unpopular AOC is outside of certain left, center-left bubbles. No, YouGov did a poll, I think last month, 35% favorable rating for AOC, 40% unfave among independents, 
only a 24% favorable rating for AOC. Again, this is like in the country, not in her district. So who cares? But yeah, yeah. You know, she is a, there's a reason that Republicans put her face in every single ad that they run in swing districts and competitive races, you know, so-and-so Democrat is going to go to DC and vote with radical Joe Biden and radical Nancy Pelosi and radical AOC. Yes. Some of this is that she's a young woman and there's a lot of sexism that swirls around her for sure. But, you know, her ideology is also not very popular. And I just, just think that like that needs to be <laughs> something that people talk about a little bit more in the conversation. She's also been like, she's gotten twisted up on certain votes. I mean, like, I know she voted against the infrastructure bill on a sort of principle mm-hmm. that it could have been bigger. There were some process issues there. That was the largest investment in greening the U.S. economy in American history to that point. And she voted against mm. it. Right. And like that made so many eyes roll in the Biden White House, um, as you know. There was the Iron yeah. Dome vote. Remember, she voted present on and then cried yeah. on the Iron Dome, like which is the um, yeah. you know the missile defense system that Israel has. It's sort of seen as a pro-Israel vote, and she's you know a leftist, and that's like a tough thing to do. And she was crying, and then she apologized for voting that way. And like I think that vote specifically cuts to the heart of your piece. Actually, it's like. She's still defining herself in real time and she's young, you know, and like, Mm. you know, in fairness, you should be allowed to like grow and change and also make mistakes. But the amount of attention and pressure that has been on her since day one is pretty wild. So we'll see how she handles that in the coming years. But I mean, she's proven herself to be pretty tough and she's a she's a really good communicator, too, independent of some of those slip ups. Right. As Dylan Byers reported Many network executives thought she was the only one who could possibly replace Rachel Maddow. So <laughs> she gets social media, man. Itself. She gets social media better than most politicians. Seriously, and most journalists, frankly. <laughs> she definitely gets it better than most journalists. That is absolutely the case. Yeah, Tara, thank you so much. Everyone, go read her piece up on Puck right now. When we come back, Teddy's here to talk about Silicon Valley Bank. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Teddy Schleifer as we continue to digest the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Ben. There were obviously hundreds of players across Silicon Valley and Wall Street and Washington who were involved in raising the alarm to the Federal Reserve and the Biden administration to take decisive action to backstop depositors and prevent a cascading chain reaction of bank runs when Silicon Valley Bank went down uh, last week. But you had a fascinating story earlier this week looking behind the scenes specifically at one of those players, the veteran venture capitalist Ron Conway, who's a a big Democratic fundraiser, a mega connector, sort of an unofficial self-appointed lobbyist for the industry. He really threw himself into trying to solve this crisis at a moment where it seemed like there was a real fear in Silicon Valley that Washington was not taking this seriously enough. Can you talk to me about how that all played out? You're you're right, Ben. And, you know, I think one of the central kind of conceits of the publication that we work for is that at the upper echelons of power, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, Washington, there are the players who run it all, right? <laughs> and there are the powers that be. And Ron Conway is one of those powers that be. He, over the last week or so, became, as you put it, self-appointed himself 
to be the guy to solve this. Um, you know, he's not been elected to anything. He's just been in town for, for 50 years. You know, he, he's older than Silicon Valley Bank itself. And he has relationships and pedigree and frankly, just like a motor that very few people in Silicon Valley do, uh, especially, you know, at his age, right? I mean, a lot of the other kind of people who were the founders of kind of modern Silicon Valley, you know, some like Andy Grove or, or, you know, even John Doerr, like people aren't doing as much as they ever have. And Conway is. So the the thumbnail sketch here of what he's done over the last a couple days. And, and, you know, Victory has a lot of fathers. Like, there's definitely some exaggeration that's going on. You know, everyone is making themselves seem like they did this. But Conway definitely did do a lot. The thumbnail sketch is that as this was imploding Thursday into Friday, Conway, who has, you know, several hundred million dollars of SV Angel money, his venture capital firm parked at the bank, went ahead and basically was the lobbyist for Silicon Valley in convincing Washington, this is worth taking seriously. You know, he was texting everybody he knew, trying to find a runway for this crisis to be resolved. So I know we reported in the story that, for instance, on Sunday, on Sunday morning, right after Janet Yellen had gone on TV and said no bailout was coming, comments that may have been misinterpreted, but suggested that, you know, this was going to crash. Conway calls up Kamala Harris, who he's known for forever. You know, the lead of our story is two days prior. Conway had dinner with Obama and Pelosi. Conway just has these relationships and has this access that few people do. And everyone at this time in Silicon Valley was trying to find government officials. So it's not as if, you know, Ron Conway was the white knight that solved this. But just the pedigree that he has and the access that he has means when other VCs were like talking to their local congressmen, Conway could get Barack Obama, Conway could get Kamala Harris. And that is sort of the way that the real world works. And that's the way that sort of the stratosphere that I write about works is that we are mere mortals compared to these folks. One of the funny subplots of this is that Conway spent a ton of time trying to work with a company to buy Silicon Valley Bank, whether whether it's assets or it's loan book, what have you. That ended up not being necessary in the end because the, the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury came out with a statement saying that actually they were going to guarantee all deposits of the bank and any other banks that started to collapse to stop this bank run in its tracks. But for a while there, it wasn't clear that was going to happen. And this backup plan that Conway was working on could have been critical. I'm curious if you have any insight into why that ended up not coming together. Yeah, look, I mean, Ron, you know, through Saturday, even like early Sunday, um, was was kind of obsessed with trying to find the buyer. You know, I know some people who are Ron Conway fans who thought that was a mistake, who thought that like, you know, why is Ron spending so much time trying to find Jamie Dimon or Credit Suisse or whomever to buy this thing when there's a way that this just can be backstopped and, and bailed out and we don't need to find do some complicated transaction. I know Conway took some criticism for that, that he was sort of almost uh, single track focused. You know, Conway was upset or disappointed when this came through. Um, you know, we saw some emails from Ron to his network late on Sunday after the Fed announced it saying, not so good news. None of the acquisition offers were, were workable. So that is TBD. You know, why why that didn't happen is going to obviously be a, a, a big question for the history books. You know, we're still learning new information uh, about Washington's response to this. You know, I'm sure there will be books or at least chapters of books that look at kind of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank this weekend. But the 
announcement that ended up happening was Ben's much simpler, right, than trying to get a buyer to find these assets. And there might end up being a buyer anyway um, when all is said and done. But for now, um, we just have the situation where, you know, Silicon Valley Bank is sort of the most secure place in in the world to put your deposits because it is insured uh, without limit anymore, well more than $250,000. But that was Conway's focus, at least on Friday and Saturday, was trying to find a buyer. And who knows, there might we might get one eventually, but as of now, this is uh, they've got new management and they're trying to make this, send the signal that all is well. Um, you know, I know Silicon Valley Bank has been doing a number of briefings with with VCs and with policymakers. The new management that is trying to suggest that there's nothing to run from here, while the old management is going to be flogged and every move of theirs dissected till the end of time. Another element of the story that really interested me is how, you know, along with Conway, there were a number of self-appointed spokespeople for the tech industry who were racing around trying to shape this evolving media narrative as it was coalescing in real time on the left and the right that characterized this bank run as basically the fault of a bunch of rich out-of-touch assholes who, who had taken on too much risk. They had reaped the benefits when the market was going up, and now they're looking for a taxpayer handout when the bank has gone belly up. There were a number of industry cheerleaders, including Governor Gavin Newsom, who were pushing back on that notion very strongly, basically arguing that that letting Silicon Valley Bank fail was going to impact a huge number of small businesses. It's going to impact farmers and mom and pop shops and put hundreds of thousands of jobs at risk. I'm just curious what sort of lessons you take away there as well. Sure. I mean, there was a, a belief that if this was, you know, called San Francisco Winemakers Bank or something like that, that it would have been a different media narrative about the fate of this institution. Look, I mean, the the reality is that, you know, a lot of their deposits are, are coming from the tech industry. Yes, there are other entities that bank there. You know, look, I mean, tech has a perception problem, obviously. And the politics of this, you know, you saw both people on the populist left and the populist right really suggesting that this bank is not the victim that everyone makes it out to be. And I don't want to say that people are unnecessarily unsympathetic to the depositors, right? Because I think the argument being made by tech people was that if you are a startup and you put your money at Silicon Valley Bank, that does not necessarily mean that you you should be held responsible for bank leadership's mistakes. And at the same time, you know, people don't really think that much about the nuances there and that in, in the, when it comes to the politics of this. Like Silicon Valley Bank sounds just like Silicon Valley, which just sounds like rich people. And, you know, who cares if it's a depositor or a shareholder or an owner or a management, new management, old management? It's all Silicon Valley. So I think there's an element to this crisis that is intentionally misleading. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. Like, you know, if this was a bank in Minnesota uh, serving bank in Iowa or, or bank in a swing state, you can only imagine how the politics would have been different, even though the the fundamentals of this are, this is a, a crisis with a regional bank and the risk of contagion would be just the same as if it was uh, any other bank. Yeah, Teddy, of course you're right. There's a lot of nuance to this. I mean, obviously guys like David Sachs and his uh, his all-in co-host Jason Calcanis, they, they had money tied up in this bank, of course. They had exposure, as did everybody in the industry. I mean, even Gavin Newsom, it came out later, he had three wineries that were clients of Silicon Valley Bank. He had personal accounts there as well. So, you know, on the one hand, nobody's hands are clean. But again, to the point you just made, this would have been a massive national economic crisis if this bank had been allowed to collapse without the government stepping in. I mean, I think hundreds of thousands of jobs would have been in peril. Payroll would have stopped at thousands and thousands of companies. This would have been a massive crisis that has now been averted. 
But the other thing that jumped out at me over the weekend was the importance of Rokana, who I, I know is a guy you've written about a lot, the congressman who represents Silicon Valley. You mentioned in your reporting he had a town hall for hundreds of people on Friday uh, in the startup industry. He was sort of a go-between between that business and Washington. I feel like he's one of the few people who has emerged from this looking even better. Funny how that happens with 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 Roe. I mean, who uh, you know, love him or hate him, certainly tends to his public profile in a way that I guess every politician does. But so so Roe was on, uh, I think, Face the Nation on Sunday morning. He represents Silicon Valley, so he's the obvious person that was able to be the spokesperson for the industry and for the region more so. You know, he is contradiction in a lot of ways, right? He is a tech guy, right, who represents. Uh, a tech area like his his first run for Congress, I think four or six years ago. You know, he was like the tech candidate, backed by Sheryl Sandberg and Marissa Meyer, and kind of beat uh, a more kind of traditional labor-backed Democrat, uh, Mike Honda. And he is also like the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign co-chair. Like he's sort of a progressive heartthrob. Um, he's always kind of talking tough about inequality and you know why are all these tech millionaires so wealthy? And yet at the same time, like David Sachs. Is you know hosting a fundraiser for Rokana, you know this kind of center right or mainstream conservative uh, rabble rouser is you know hosting Bernie Sanders backed congressman at his house in in Pacific Heights uh, later this month. So Roe Ro is an enigma in some ways. I mean he's also you know very omnipresent in kind of the media and our political culture. But yeah, I mean he comes out of this looking like the guy who who accomplished a lot and to some extent he did accomplish a lot. But the moment sort of chose him, right? He was able to be the spokesperson for Silicon Valley, which sometimes is not the situation you, or the, the role you want to take on. But he kind of shapeshifts too. I mean, he, he he can talk tough to the industry and be like the, the Nixon goes to China kind of guy here where he talks, you know, even though I'm a Silicon Valley guy, I think Silicon Valley's made mistakes. He can play that card. And he can also play the, you know, traditional congressman who's impeccable constituent relations, which is really what he was over the last couple of days where he can portray himself as just the guy standing up for the local regional wine owner. Um, so Roe does come out of this looking pretty good. Yeah, he, he's totally a smart guy, a very savvy operator. I mean, also his name is in the mix for Senate now that Diane Feinstein is, is on her way to retiring. Um, he, he is certainly rumored to be eyeing that seat. So uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about him a lot more in the, uh, in the months to come. Teddy, thanks as always for joining us. This was fun. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.